Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Uh, Over the past several years, as a community, we have begun to organize our worshiping life um, together around the Christian calendar more and more. And I want to take a little bit of time at the beginning of this morning's message to tell you why. Uh, We do this because uh, following the Christian calendar throughout the year invites us uh, as the people of God into practices and observances that orient our life uh, around the life of Christ. And so uh, during Advent, uh, which we just completed, Advent is a season of anticipation and waiting. And uh, one night, this is great, one night during uh, Advent, I was talking with uh, Jaden, our oldest daughter, about Advent, because that's what dorky pastors do in their house. Um, and so I was saying, hey, this is, a, you know, Israel waited for hundreds of years for the Messiah, uh, and even though he did finally come, we still, during Advent, are waiting. Do you know, Jaden, what we're waiting for, right? Just a little, uh, was quizzing her. Uh, and, and she answered, yeah, we're waiting for Jesus to come back, um, the second advent. She didn't say the second advent, but that would have been awesome if she did. Uh, but she said, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And I, fo- I followed up and said, yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and what happens when Jesus comes back? And then she said this. She said, everything will be made new. And I thought to myself, yes, she's got it. <laughs> that's, not, that's what I thought. What I said was, hey, that's right. Uh, the gospel isn't about us going somewhere else. It's about God coming here. Uh, And and let me just tell you as a side note, uh, you know, we need our children to understand this. Uh, We need our children to really understand the fundamental hope of the gospel, which is not that we one day will be sucked out of this place, but that one day God will fill this place with his presence and make all things new. Uh, Because when our children know this, they will then be motivated to engage the world in loving ways that embody Christ. A few generations grew up believing that the gospel was all just about getting out of here before God blows the whole thing up, and we can all see where that version of Christianity has gotten us so far. So that's my little spiel about Advent. Now, after Advent, we enter into Christmastide, and Christmastide is a 12-day celebration of Jesus' birth that just ended this past Friday. So Jesus' birthday party lasts 12 days, and the way that you can practically apply this to your life is you have every right to make your own birthday last as long as possible. Amen? Right? Some of you are like, it's my birthday month, and that's okay, because Jesus' birthday is 12 days. So that's pretty cool. Uh, And then yesterday was Epiphany. I promise all of this is going somewhere. Uh, Yesterday was Epiphany. And Epiphany is a day which marks the arrival of the Magi to visit the Christ child. It signifies uh, that the good news of the arrival of the Messiah has reached even to the Gentile world. Uh, And so if you're here today and you are not of Jewish descent, uh, then you should really love Epiphany, because Epiphany means that the, the gospel has reached even to the ends of the earth where you live. <laughs> and so today, uh, the Sunday after Epiphany, is Baptism of Our Lord Sunday, uh, where we observe the baptism of Christ. Now, some of you might be saying we still have Christmas trees out and all of this kind of stuff. It's, you know, here's the deal. When you fit the whole narrative of the life of Christ into a single year, the narrative moves pretty quickly. And so here we are with, uh, before we've had a chance to put our manger scenes in storage, uh, Christ is being baptized because he's already grown up. Uh, So work with me a little bit. We've got a mixed message with the nativity out, and then we're also looking at the baptism of Christ. But 
actually, tomorrow at 10 a.m., if you don't have anything else going on in the world, we would love to have your help here because we'll be taking down our Christmas decorations. So uh, tomorrow at 10 a.m., if you can help out. Uh, so what I want to do this morning is I want to read Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 1 through verse 11, uh, which looks at the baptism of Christ. And uh, for those who are able, I'll invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Uh, I'm going to read the passage, and after I do, I'm going to say, this is the word of God for the people of God, to which I invite your response, thanks be to God. It says this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothes made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. All of that is an ancient Near Eastern way of saying John the Baptist was a hippie. Uh, and this was his message. He says, after, he comes with, after me comes one who is more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. For I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, You know, baptism is an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, If you're familiar with what baptism is, we we gather people in the church. Uh, We have a little small pool here and we dunk people underwater before uh, cautiously and, and very slowly bringing them back up. Just kidding. Uh, we, we dunk them underwater. We bring them quickly back up and families come for the occasion. People clap. Uh, people who are baptized often are moved to tears. It is really, really quite a deal. Uh, but the question then is what does all of that mean? Uh, Well, in Romans chapter 6, the Apostle Paul addresses this very question, and he frames baptism as this. He frames baptism as a way where we can join Christ in his death so that we might also join him in his resurrection. Uh, Baptism is so appropriate because coming out of Christmas and Christmastide, we recognize that that part of the beauty of the incarnation of, of God being made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is finding solidarity with us. What baptism does is it reverses that and it says that we also find solidarity with Jesus Christ. And so we go under the water to symbolize a death, maybe a death of our old selves, of our old way of life. And then we come, come up out of the water to symbolize resurrection to new life, New life with Christ, new life now empowered by the Spirit. Uh, It's a beautiful thing. And and the reason that people, that families gather, the reason that that people clap and celebrate and cheer, and the reason that those who are being baptized are moved to tears is because it is such a powerful embodiment of what Christ, of new life in Christ. But it's also a marker of belonging to Christ and to his kingdom community. 
Uh, I've got a picture there. Jay, you want to bring up the picture of the baptisms? Um, Baptisms are one of my favorite things to do as a pastor, is to have the privilege and the honor of baptizing people. You know, through the years, we have had the opportunity and the privilege of baptizing a number of people as they have experienced new life in Christ through baptism. Uh, It's a beautiful thing. Um, I particularly love how we do it, where where we, uh, we hear a testimony, we hear part of the story of what God has done in the life of those who are being baptized, and then, and then the band strikes up a song, and, and during the song of celebration of new life in Christ, we, we dunk the folks, we bring them up out of the water, and people cheer and go crazy. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's a good thing, and it's one of my favorite things. But the question becomes, given how the Apostle Paul helps us to understand baptism, it raises an important question, doesn't it? The question is, why did Jesus have to be baptized? I mean, if baptism is all about us identifying and and finding solidarity with the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then then why in the world does Jesus have to be baptized? This all seems a bit frivolous and unnecessary, does it not? And yet, all four of the Gospels, as they retell the story of the life of Jesus Christ, include the baptism. Uh, it, It seems to be this very important thing, this central thing. And so the answer to that question of why did Jesus have to be baptized, I invite us to return to the theme of epiphany. Because epiphany literally means manifestation. And so the baptism of Jesus is always observed in the season of epiphany. In fact, it's always the first Sunday after epiphany. And epiphany is always on January 6th. Now, it always happens during the season of Epiphany because the baptism of Jesus makes manifest part of the character that helps us understand who he is. In other words, the baptism of Christ gives us important clues into who Jesus is. As I try to help my kids and as I try to help folks understand what they're reading when they read Scripture, I often say this. In any passage of Scripture that you come, in, come, that you come into contact with or that you're reading, ask, ask these two important questions. Number one, what does this teach us about God? In other words, what does this passage of Scripture tell me about who God is? And then the other important question is, what does this teach me about myself? Does this show me anything about the human condition? And so when we come to the baptism of Jesus Christ, it's, it's answering in, in loud volumes, the, it's addressing that very first question, what can we learn about who Jesus is in the epiphany of Jesus Christ through his baptism, the manifestation of his character? The first thing that we learn is that, is that Jesus is a new type or a new order or a new kind of prophet. He is a prophet sent by God, empowered by the Spirit. You see, John's baptism was for the forgiveness of sins, and he is a prophet in the line of Elijah and Isaiah and all the other prophets calling people to repentance, and that's a good thing. But we find something unique in the story of the baptism of Jesus that should clue us in that what what Jesus is doing is he's starting a brand new order of things, a brand new type of things. And that clue, that that hint that we get is that we, we are told that the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. 
It's pointing us to this great reality that now, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Jesus will baptize his followers also in the Spirit. And yes, we'll continue to use water. And yes, there will be repentance and forgiveness and all of that. But even more than that, there's a deeper reality. A new order has begun that as followers of Jesus are baptized, they will not just be baptized in water, but they will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What this means is that as we are offered forgiveness, we are also given empowerment for living. And I think that's really key and that's really important for us to grab a hold of, is that when we come to faith, and, and, and we, we gotta get our theology right, right? There's no magic in the water. It's, it's when we come to faith. And then, and then we symbolize and embody that through the symbol of baptism. But when we come to faith, We are given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us for holy living. It's a beautiful thing. And so the Holy Spirit is given to us to help guide us in the way of salvation. I'd like to offer a little side note here. Salvation is not believing the right things so that you can go to a place called heaven when you die. This is not salvation. If it is, that's the tiniest sliver of salvation. But rather, salvation is trusting in the way of Christ and leaning on his grace to walk in it. That is to say that salvation is is not connected so much to what you believe as to what you do. And hopefully your beliefs inform what you do, right? But there's there's a whole picture, a bigger picture that we need to grab a hold of, that salvation isn't just giving intellectual assent to a particular set of facts so that you can be assured of of afterlife insurance. (laughs) But rather, salvation is, is the grace to walk in the way of Christ and to lean into that. It's a way of life, not just a system of belief. It's a way of life, not just a system of belief. So the first thing that we learn that, we, that is made manifest in the baptism of Christ is that this is a brand new kind, an order of prophet who will now baptize his followers in the Holy Spirit where we will forgive, yes, we, were, we will receive, yes, the forgiveness of our sins, but we will also receive empowerment for living in the way of Christ, amen? Now the second thing that we notice, and this is what I wanna kind of camp out on is this. There's a voice from heaven that speaks over Christ at the baptism. Scholars believe almost universally that this is the voice of God the Father. We, of course, can know that by what the voice says, which is this. The voice says, you are my son whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. You are my son whom I love, and with you, I am well pleased. Now this, there's an interesting thing here. At this point in the story, uh, Jesus hasn't done anything to earn his father's love. Uh, he hasn't performed any miracles. He hasn't drawn any big crowds to himself. Uh, He doesn't have any evangelism strategy. There's nothing going on. He hasn't healed anybody. In fact, the only thing that we know Jesus has done at this point, and we get this from a narrative from one of the other gospels, is he's managed to get himself separated from his parents at the temple. And then they were panicked because they couldn't find him. 
So up to this point, the only thing Jesus has done is gotten lost at the grocery store, <laughs> right? He hasn't, any, he hasn't done anything to earn the love of his father. And yet, there it is. You are my son, whom I love. And with you, I am well pleased. New parents often report that after the birth of a baby, they feel unconditional love and acceptance for this child even though the baby has done nothing to earn it. And nor has the baby yet, in those earliest moments of their life, done anything to lose it. It is just there. And I think this teaches us a lot about the nature of God's love for each and every one of us, and for each and every one of you. The message I want to share with you is quite simply stated it's far more difficult to live into this reality. But I find myself compelled to continue to proclaim it, not only over my own life, but over all of your lives. And that, is that, that truth is this, that the love of God cannot be earned through merit, nor can it be lost through failure. The love of God cannot be earned through merit, nor can it be lost through failure. The love of God just is. In fact, I would say that the only constant we know in our world is change, right? Things are changing all the time. But the one thing that does not change is God's outpouring of love toward you and for you. And I believe that there's someone in this room that just needs to hear that today. Maybe there's several of you. And if not, then it's just for me. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> but the love of God cannot be earned through merit, and it cannot be lost through failure. When love is based on merit, it is this. I will love you, but you have to perform. You have to do the right thing. You have to draw the big crowds. You have to impress me. I will love you as soon as I deem you worthy of it. When love is lost on failure, it is this. I would love you, but you messed up. I would love you, but you failed. I would love you, but you did this to that person, to me, to, their, to, to that other one, but you, I would love you, but you didn't do this. And what happens in our life is that we can get so caught up in believing that the love of God is earned through merit, and so we run and we chase and we do all this effort and we try to earn God's love, and we're earning and we're earning and we're earning, and guess what? You will always fall short if you're trying to earn God's love. There will, never, there will be no measure of success or accomplishment in your life to which you will finally be able to say, I am now worthy of God's love. But the opposite is also true. We also, if we believe that God's love is lost through failure, then we will see everything in our life through the lens of what we are not. And we will begin to see everything as a failure and nothing is ever good enough. 
And so there's this truth that we, that we need to grab a hold of, and, and I don't know what else to do but, but proclaim it passionately over our lives, which is the love of God. When it comes to the love of God, there is no but. <laughs> I will love you, but you have to succeed. I would love you, but you have failed too many times. But when it comes to the love of God, there is no but. It is just I love you. In fact, it's, the good news is even better than that. The good news is even better than that because it isn't just that God's love can't be gained or can't be lost, but it's actually that God's love is present even in the midst of our own sin and our own failure. That in the very moments when we are falling short quite legitimately, God's love is there, pulling us in, inviting us back, drawing us in, calling us to invite, calling us to accept and to receive the love that he has for us. Paul, the Apostle Paul, captures this truth when he says this. He says, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want to spend a little bit of time here too because in one of the central messages and practices of the Christian faith should be love of neighbor. And sometimes we do really well at that, right? As the people of God, and other times we do not so well. <laughs> but one of the central tenets and practices of the Christian faith is love of neighbor. And, and there's a central way of that. There's lots of reasons for that. It's because... The image of God is in us and God is love and so we should be loving to one another. But, but I'm convinced that one of the reasons that God calls us to such drastic love for not only brothers and sisters in Christ but also love of our, even our enemies. I mean, the, the call for love in the gospel is radical, right? It's not just like love those people who are lovable. Uh, it's not just like love your brother and sister in Christ. It's who is is actively plotting against you, love them. <laughs> love your enemy. And I'm convinced that one of the reason that this is so central in the message of the gospel is this. The way in which we experience the love of God for us is through the love of the community. That is to say, it can be really hard. Now, it does happen where the Holy Spirit just kind of warms our spirit with a sense of God's love, but more often than not, the way it happens and the way we experience God's love for us is through the loving kindness of a friend or a brother and sister in Christ. It's through community. It's through, well, the body of Christ is how we experience this love of God more often than not. And so central to the life of the community of Christ, this, this new community, this church, is that we ought to love one another. If nothing else, we ought to love one another. But man, can we also embody God's love to the world by even loving 
our enemies. Does this make sense? I hope I heard a few low-toned grumbles, so I'm gonna go with that. Uh, <laughs> it's absolutely central. And I believe that it's a, a word for someone today. The love of God cannot be earned through merit, nor can it be lost through failure. And so principally, what the baptism of Jesus does is it establishes his identity. He is of a new kind of order of prophet, one who will baptize in the Spirit. And so what it does is it establishes his identity. So for us, this is exactly how the Apostle Paul frames baptism as well. Again, in Galatians chapter three, the Apostle Paul, and we're drawing a lot from him this morning, says this. He says, so in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ so that now there is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, there's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are heirs according to the promise. What Paul is essentially saying here is that baptism is an identity establishing act. That when Jesus was baptized, it solidified his identity. Before he launched into his ministry, it solidifies this is who I am. I am God's son and he is well pleased with me and I am loved. I think it's no mistake that God announces his message of love and acceptance over his son before he sends his son out into ministry. Because he knew that in life, you can get beat up and you can get beat down. And there will be people who, without explanation, will not like you. But be certain of this. I love you and with you, I am well pleased. Right, like God the Father is just like setting the foundation for Christ to go in and do ministry. And I hope the same would be true for us. That as we become, that the, the love of God was, would draw us into faith and that through the act of faith we are given the Holy Spirit empowered for holy living all in the foundation of going forward on mission into the world with, on sitting on the very bedrock of God's love for us. Because guess what, church? In this world, you will be beat up and there will be people who do not like you and you may sit next to them at work. <laughs> but don't allow any of that to rob you of how deeply God loves you. For baptism is an identity establishing act. Let me put it this way. At baptism we learn this. Jesus is who God says he is. And I would say this, you are who God says you are. And in Christ, you are a son or a daughter of God. That in Christ, you are a son or daughter of the Most High, the Creator God. 
And what the practice of faith is, is it's learning and leaning into your new identity in Christ. Now, I thought I'd get some amens there, so I'm going to say it again. (laughs) The practice of faith is learning and leaning into your new identity in Christ. Amen? That's That's what the practice of faith is. And it is hard, right? And there will be some times that you're like, I got this, and I am going, and it is all uphill from here, and then it will crash down, and you'll feel like you're fumbling in the dark, and how do I do this, and how do I reestablish who I am in Christ? But the, but the process of practicing faith is learning, learning the fact this is who I am in Christ, and then leaning more and more into that, and never giving up. Let me tell you, I said in our Christmas Eve service, I said that this year, more than any other year, has, has troubled me. Uh, that we've just had some things going on in our world that have affected me more deeply than I have, have ever been affected before by news cycles and things like that. And I find myself often troubled. But in our Christmas Eve service, I said, and yet, though, I still choose to hope. I still want to lean into what I know to be true. I don't want to assume that darkness has won the day. And so I encourage you this. Faith is not never having moments of uncertainty or doubt. Faith is in the seasons of doubt, leaning in to what you know to be true. And so in the moments when you don't feel the love of God, in the moments when your brothers and sisters who are supposed to embody the love of Christ to you betray you, insult you, turn their back on you, or whatever it is, in those moments when all of a sudden you, became, you become really uncertain, I encourage you this, lean in. Do not give up. Do not assume that faith is gone. Do not assume that hope is lost. But lean in to the truth that you are infinitely loved by the creator God. Lean into the truth that one day all things will be made new. That this darkness will not last forever. Lean in. Lean in. Lean in. I've never had a season of my life where faith was framed more as just keep leaning. Just keep leaning. Refuse to give up. Refuse to lose hope. And so all preaching is autobiographical. I don't know if you know that, but all preaching is autobiographical. So when you, when you hear someone preach, you learn some stuff about them. <laughs> That's why every pastor goes home and takes a nap on Sunday afternoon is because we have come up here and regardless of the size of the congregation, we have borne our soul. And so I encourage you to join me in just continuing to lean in and embrace the love that God has for you. Because Jesus is who God says he is. And that is also true of you that you are who God says you are. You are a son or daughter of the Most High God. 
Amen? May you receive and accept his love today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, we have gathered in this space, coming from all walks of life, all situations, circumstances present in this room. And the truth is, is that while the beginning of a new year can be a year, be a time of great hope and renewal and a new chance and a fresh start and a clean slate, it can be all of those things, but God, it can also it can also be a really down time of year for folks. And so wherever we find ourselves today, God, we pray that you would meet us here and that we would receive and experience your love that is poured out. God, even that we would, um, that you would meet us here at the table as we come forward for communion. God, may in the process and in the act of coming forward and taking the bread and the juice may those may that act somehow God help us to receive your love in our lives if there's anyone here today God that feels utterly unloved I pray particularly for them that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would be so active in their life and heart that they would leave here today having an epiphany of who you are, that God, your character would be made manifest, not just so that we understand it in our minds, but so that we can receive it and know it in our hearts, in the deepest part of who we are. So God, thank you for your message of love. Thank you that you demonstrate, that your son Jesus demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, he died for us. God, be with us in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.